0: Coffee?
1: Thank you. So, what brings you guys to the middle of nowhere? We're bank robbers. (laughs) We're just passing through. So, when do I get my share of the money?
0: Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric.
2: And I'm Johanna. And I'm Rosie. I attended the virtual Sundance Film Festival last weekend and watched about 16 films over the course of 48 hours. It was intense. I now see what a lot of people say about Sundance. It's kind of a mixed bag. I'm sure it would be really fun to see all these things in person, seeing them virtually. It was all too easy after the first 40 minutes to be like, nope. And then move on to the next thing. So it was a good virtual festival experience, but I am looking forward to seeing some of the winners that I missed. And it'll be interesting to see if they continue this model in the future.
0: I have been setting up new gear. People can't see me on this since it's a podcast, but if you could, you would see there's a new microphone. Gone is my headset microphone, so I no longer look like Karen from Accounting. (laughs)
1: sorry (laughs) that's funny Karen from from, Karen from accounting is that you girl okay
0: (laughs) does anyone else feel bad for people born with the name Karen Karens are having a bad year
2: you know I know some really nice Karens like some Karens who are very accommodating and you know just the sweetest most thoughtful people and those are the Karens I feel very sad for Yeah,
0: same here. But I do have a movie pick that I watched since the last time we met, Deja Vu. Somehow I missed this from uh, 2006, a Denzel Washington film. Tony Scott was the director. In fact, it was one of Tony Scott's last films. If you missed it too, it would not be surprising because it was the 44th most popular film of 2006. It really flew under the radar, and I think because that was a time Denzel was making a lot of these cop films. We talked about one in a previous podcast when we were talking about Training Day. Well, I think that people were kind of dismissing it for that reason. It was marketed as a cop film, and it is kind of a cop film. It's police procedural anyway, but it's also a low-key sci-fi time travel film, which I didn't know at all from the trailer, and so when I watched it, I was like, whoa, this is actually pretty cool. Now, is it as good as 12 Monkeys or one of the Terminator films? No, but it's still worth checking out. Let's jump into our discussion of Road to Perdition.
2: I looked up when Road to Perdition was set to release, and it was originally set to release in December of 2001 and was pushed back because of the September 11th attacks. They didn't think it was the right mood to come out in the months immediately following that. So they pushed it back to July of 2002.
0: Movies getting pushed back because of crises?
1: (laughs) 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 We wouldn't know anything about that.
0: That's such an alien concept in 2021 when we're recording this.
2: exactly. So I thought it would be worth exploring a little bit of what was going on in 2001, leading up to when the film was supposed to release, and then what was going on in 2002, in the six months before it actually came to theaters. So a little trip down memory lane. We're going to start with the attacks that happened on, on September 11th. October 2001, Apple releases the iPod. October 7th, War in Afghanistan begins as a response to the September 11th attacks starting the War on Terror. October 26th, George W. Bush signs the Patriot Act into law. In December, Enron files for Chapter 11. Do you remember Enron? That feels like a million years ago. December 13th, there was an attack on the Indian Parliament, sparking a standoff between India and Pakistan. And then crossing over into 2002, in January, the Open Skies Treaty went into effect. I had to look up what this was. As it turns out, we have since left this agreement, but basically it's an aerial surveillance program so that countries in Europe, the United States and Russia can keep track of each other's military activities with these unarmed surveillance flights. I thought it was going to be something much cooler like Skynet, but alas. (laughs) Anyway, we've recently left that, so it's worth looking up just to see where that came from. February 19th, NASA's Mars Odyssey Space Probe begins to map the surface of Mars. Also early in 2002, the euro is officially unleashed, and European countries start transitioning out of their individual currencies, and... June 6, an object with an estimated diameter of 10 meters collides with Earth over the Mediterranean and detonates in midair with an explosion about the size of a small atomic bomb, which, again, totally forgot that happened. But that was the most significant event that happened shortly before Road to Perdition went to theaters. And the only other little bits of news factoids I thought people would want to hear about is what was going on in organized crime in 2001 and 2002. Most notably, in 2001, the FBI made an arrangement with Tadamasa Goto, the head of the Yakuza, to arrange a liver transplant in exchange for inside intel. Also, in December of 2001, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York indicted members of the new Springfield Boys gang, which was sort of like a farm team for some, you know, crime families in New York. And they were charged with burglary and racketeering, loan sharking, money laundering. So organized crime was still very much alive and well in the early 2000s. It's kind of funny, you know, I we don't hear a lot of headlines about organized crime lately. I I was trying to remember the most recent one that came up in 2020, but I guess we have other things to think about.
0: (laughs) Once again, we have something that was based on a graphic novel. The graphic novel was written by Max Allen Collins, a mystery novelist who grew up reading comics. He frequently cites Chester Gould and Mickey Spillane as being his biggest influences. And his first novel, Bait Money, which came out in 1973. This is a direct quote from him about a 50-ish bank robber and his young unlikely accomplice, a comic book collector in his early 20s. A series followed, Nolan and John, I think, around eight books to date, and all of the entries are filled with comics references, unquote. This was an interview he did in 2002 with CBR.com, a comic book site. This novel caught the attention of the Chicago Tribune Syndicate editor, who was looking for a writer to replace Chester Gould as the writer of Dick Tracy when he retired in 1977 after 46 years of writing the comic strip. Collins got the job replacing him, and that in turn got a gig as the writer of comics and graphic novels. After 15 years on Dick Tracy, he had a clash with one of the editors and was fired, and needing work fast, he accepted the first offer that came along, writing a graphic novel for Paradox Press, which is an imprint of DC Comics. He long wanted to write about the Looney crime family, so he chose to do that. He said that he wanted to, quote, combine the two major crime motifs of the 30s into one narrative, the urban Little Caesar type gangster story and the rural Bonnie and Clyde type saga. Also often cites Donald Westlake as an influence, and in particular for this series, Westlake's novel The Hunter, which our audience might be familiar with as It was adapted to the 1999 Mel Gibson film Payback, about a mobster out for revenge after being double-crossed by his own gang. But it's clear that at some point he must have read and been strongly influenced by the Lone Wolf and Cub manga. He wrote a series of articles about the Lone Wolf manga and films for the magazine Asian Cult Cinema. He also wrote a story called Mommy about a girl who discovers that her mother is a psycho killer, and one, he wanted to do a male version variation on that theme. If you remember the flipping of the genders from in "Motorcycle" to Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, it's kind of like that. Speaking of which, Collins has directed a few ultra-low-budget movies, including an ad- adaptation of Mommy for the direct-to-video outfit Troma. So I read it. It's great. It's a fantastic graphic novel. It's nowhere near as long as the Lone Wolf and Cub series. It's only about 300 pages long. The artwork's black and white pen and ink line work, reminiscent more of early 20th century illustrated books than comics, which is perfect for the story. The writing's extremely rich in historical detail And just like with Lone Wolf and Cub, it includes real-world historical figures and fills the gaps between the lines with a sort of could-have-been story. Instead of the Shogun's executioner, we get Rock Island, Illinois mobster John Looney's hitman, Michael, the angel of death as he's referred to. Collins never met the illustrator Richard Piers Raynor who lives in the UK, but he chose him because he was a realist who he thought could bring the subject matter to life. Very different from the kind of comic artists he worked on Dick Tracy with. It was made at a time when Hollywood realized that comics weren't just superheroes and were easily adaptable to the screen and audiences didn't need to be familiar with the source material for it to be successful. So we got from hell Ghost World, A History of Violence, Men in Black, American Splendor, Sin City 300, V for Vendetta all adapted to film in the early 2000s and this was part of that wave. It reunited Academy Award-winning director of American Beauty Sam Mendes with Academy Award-winning cinematographer of American Beauty Conrad Hall. It was also the last film for Conrad Hall He's one of only 6 cinematographers with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In fact, he won an Oscar for this film but died only a matter of weeks before it was awarded. The film was shot on Super 35 with liberal use of wide-angle lenses and the paintings of Edward Hopper were an inspiration for the visual look and you really once you know that you really see it in the film. Some major changes from the comic was that there was no Jude Law character in the comics. There was no family that nurses him back to health, etc. Both Tom Hanks and Conrad Hall had asked Mendez to reduce the violence. That's maybe because Tom was a new father, I guess. Rosie told us, like, having kids changes you.
1: It really does. It really does.
0: <laughs> and that fit well with what Mendez wanted to do, which he wanted to make a quieter, nonverbal Kurosawa-style film. Collins said, quote, my main source of inspiration was John Woo. I was trying to write a John Woo movie. Instead, Sam Mendes made The Godfather out of it. But that's cool, too. Collins didn't mind the violence being toned down, but he did mind the profanity, which he thought didn't fit his concept of period dialogue. Casting based on the graphic novel, I would have cast Andy Garcia, as O'Sullivan. Oh, the character's name was O'Sullivan. And so some of the, the names slightly changed. One more note, which is that it was also Paul Newman's last film.
2: Oh, <laughs> I, that's, I mean, it's a good role for him, I suppose. But, you know, I, I kind of wish he had been able to go out on a high note, you know, with a, a role that's full of, you know, charm and swagger, like his, earlier work i mean he's so he's so brilliant and charismatic and in this in this film i mean it's a great performance but it's not you know like if i were paul newman i would want to be able to you know be a sly son of a bitch again
0: (laughs) conrad hall and paul newman did Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid together. So that shows you how long they were both in the business. This was both of their final films. So I think they were probably pleased with the results. I was going to get more into casting, but you can't really talk about casting in this without talking about um, Daniel Craig. So I'm going to turn it over to Johanna for that.
2: I was excited to do a little research into what Daniel Craig had done before this film, since I knew this was early in his career, and, you know, a different role from 007. But I was surprised to discover that Daniel Craig has like a legit, serious actor. I Somehow I thought that I was going to find out that he had been discovered as a handyman, like Harrison Ford or something. But no, actually, Daniel Craig knew he wanted to be an actor as early as six years old.
0: There are no handymen that become actors in Britain. Like, Britain <laughs> is serious about their acting. Like, that's an American thing, like where someone gets discovered <laughs> in a, Yeah. Britain does that for rock stars, but not for, you know...
2: Anyway, well, <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> yeah. So um, Daniel Craig was born in Chester, England. His mother was an art teacher. His father was a midshipman turned pub owner. Daniel Craig, born nineteen sixty eight. Which, man, that guy ages well. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, uh, so he started acting as early as six, but at the age of sixteen, it became apparent he was very serious about this acting. He was accepted into the National Youth Theatre and moved to London, where he worked part time in restaurants as you do, in order to finance his education. In 1988, he entered the Guildhall School of Music and Drama a prestigious institution where he studied with Colin McCormack, an actor from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And some of Daniel Craig's early stage roles were in Shakespeare. He played Agamemnon in Troilus and Cressida, which is a very weird play that isn't performed very often so kind of an interesting start he also had some early early roles in Romeo and Juliet and that's sort of the foundation of his career after graduating in 1991 he did a lot of work in television including most interestingly the young Indiana Jones Chronicles where he played a Nazi in one episode and now I have to go find that (laughs) But he also starred in Zorro, he was in the National Theaters 1993 production of Angels in America, and he continued to take roles in television, some random cameos in things like Tales from the Crypt, if anybody remembers Tales from the Crypt, and other bit parts in period pieces that our fans might recognize, like a kid in King Arthur's Court. Which I remember loving, even though apparently it was a terrible film. That's what the reviewers tell me. He also starred in a lot of romances, a lot of period romances and a lot of love triangle intrigue kind of films, which, I mean, the man is a smoke show. Totally understand why he would, he would smolder his way into any romantic film.
0: We need to get another guy on this podcast so we can get back to objectifying <laughs> women on here. <laughs> I, it's like every week I have to deal with this.
2: Well, so this film is all men. The only high point is getting to objectify some of them because there are like what you know, um, the the wife in, in Road to Perdition is on screen for what ten minutes or something. Is the that's only female we, that's character. That's all we
1: get of her, and that's Jennifer Jason Leigh, who was yeah a, a real fact, actor, a real <laughs> yes, and she was really good in pretty much everything that she did, and that she just got that bit part and that was it. I feel like she kind of got shafted a little bit. <laughs> There's actually
0: more women in this than the graphic novel because you never see the mother, and there is no surrogate mother household that nurses them back to health. So it's just a guy thing. But anyway, continue.
2: Anyway. I'm not sorry about objectifying Daniel Craig in the course of this <laughs> podcast because this this is what we ladies get get to talk about. This is the space we're creating here. That's anyway. right. No
0: apologies <laughs> needed. <laughs> so wait till we get the skyfall.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, back back to Daniel Craig's impressive acting career, which, you know, it stands aside from his beautiful blue eyes and strong jaw and and all of that anyway so he uh, his breakout film uh you could say is the trench which is a world war one drama followed by a quirky romantic comedy where he plays a schizophrenic ruining his brother's restaurant and again this film some voices i have to see now i it's hard to picture daniel craig in a role like this but he's a great actor i'm sure it's a very strong performance the first film where we really see Daniel Craig as the Daniel Craig we think of now is in Tomb Raider, which was released in June of 2001. If you haven't seen Tomb Raider, I'm not going to spoil what his role is in the film, but uh, I think there's a shower scene you should check out. Anyway, okay. Noted. <laughs> um, after that, um, he his next film after Tomb Raider was Road to Perdition. And from there, his career really took off. Other hits that you should see, other than obviously his role as 007, Layer Cake is a really fun, it's it's kind of like Snatch, but, it, but darker. You know, the same kind of quirky, you know, British... Uh, it's
0: part of the British neo-noir crime genre that was popular in the early 2000s, yeah.
2: Yeah. And that, I I think, sort of solidified Daniel Craig as this compelling action crime actor who could take on these roles. So highly recommend Layer Cake. He also starred in Munich. Actually, another interesting role, he was in the film Sylvia, where he played Ted Hughes, the husband of Sylvia Plath, opposite Gwyneth Paltrow. So some really interesting work besides James Bond after Road to Perdition. But I think this film marks sort of the turning point, moving away from television and bit parts into leading man territory.
1: You know, delving into uh, the year that the movie took place, which it took place in the winter of 1931. A lot went on that year. It was... Right around the time of the Great Depression, but there were some other cool things that were happening. Ernest Lawrence invented the cyclotron, which was used to accelerate particles to study nuclear physics. Albert Einstein began doing research at the California Institute of Technology, along with astronomer Edwin Hubble. The ball started rolling to eliminate Prohibition. Gandhi was released from imprisonment again. That was the end of January. The movie City Lights, starring Charlie Chaplin, was released at the end of January. New Zealand's city of Napier and Hastings were destroyed in an earthquake. It measured 7.9 on the Richter scale and it killed 256 people. That was also the year that Joseph Stalin decided that he wanted a more industrialized Russia and told the Russian people that if we don't industrialize, we'll fall behind and be crushed by all the other countries. Vatican radio began. The original film version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi was released. That was on uh, Valentine's Day of 1931. California had the go ahead by the United States Congress to build the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, which changed California forever. The Star-Spangled Banner was adopted as the United States National Anthem. Well, this was a big one with the crime families, though I don't feel like it really affected what was going on in the movie however it did affect crime family life as it was because nevada legalized gambling that year which changed the game the empire state building was completed in new york city that year that was also the year the jehovah's witnesses were established in columbus ohio (laughs) 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 which i found kind of fascinating let's see okay um in June of that year, there, in an attempt to stop the banking crisis in Central Europe from causing a worldwide financial meltdown, our president, Herbert Hoover, issued the Hoover moratorium. Let's see, Dick Tracy, the comic strip, was created by cartoonist Chester Gold, making his debut appearance in the Detroit Mirror that year. Um, American gangster Al Capone was sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion in Chicago. And uh, October 24th, the George Washington Bridge... Across the Hudson River in the United States was dedicated, and it opened to traffic the following day at 3,500 feet. (laughs) It nearly doubled the previous record for the longest main span in the world.
0: Let's go right into your reaction to the film.
1: I really loved it, even though it was very sad. You know, as I mentioned before, it's really hard for me to watch movies where children get killed, but especially if a mother gets killed in front of a child, that really uh, that really hits me hard. It was relevant to the film, so I understand why it was in there. So, you know, audience, don't get mad at me about that. It's just one of those things that is hard for me to see, but it's relevant to the story, which is a great story from listening to you, Eric, and the modifications that they made. I'm glad they made the changes that they did for the film. I feel like if they wouldn't have made the changes, the film probably wouldn't have done as well. Because it changed the story to be more film-friendly at the time, I guess you could say. I did like the story. I liked the character establishment. It was interesting how they handled a child witnessing all of the violence and taking part in the crime during the movie. And how the son kind of adapted to that. Like, okay, this is our lifestyle now. I'm doing this with dad. I'm helping dad out. We're going to get through this. Without giving too much of the ending away, which I'm sure we'll discuss later when the ending did happen I actually verbally out loud was like oh no (laughs) literally out loud like my whole family was looking at me like what you know because I was pretty much the only one paying attention to the movie at the time and making notes and everything like that I was like you can't be serious gosh you know but I did like the fact that they had the farm family that nursed them back to health I like how even though the father wasn't there they still had a wake for his wife when she had passed Yeah, it was very interesting character development, and it was interesting how Paul Newman's character didn't even hesitate to turn on Mike Sullivan when the time came, uh, in protection for his son, who was a total...
2: Asswipe.
0: Yes. We have the explicit (laughs) tag on this, so you can say whatever you want. He
1: he was... I just don't even have the words for for how much of a how much of an asshole this guy was. I mean, he was just a he was like the epitome of the spoiled brat that didn't get his way and even though everything was handed to him, he was still going to be jealous anyway and and probably needed a lot of mental health, but they didn't do that back then.
0: I really like this film. It's a little more of a challenging watch. It was originally conceived of as more of an action graphic novel. There's a lot more action. There's stuff that I really wish had made it into the movie that was in the comics. For instance, when Michael goes to visit Frank Nitti, Al Capone's number one general, at the hotel in Chicago, he finds out that they're not on his side. And he has to fight his way out of the hotel, back to the street, which is an amazing action sequence in the comics and I'm sure they cut it for budgetary reasons (laughs) and also to tone down the amount of violence. The film does have a ton in common with Lone Wolf and Cub. And I want to get into that. The epigraph at the start of the graphic novel is the words, you must choose a road for yourself. A quote by Katsuo Koike, the writer of Lone Wolf and Cub. Visually, there's also some similarities. Not only do you have the whole road motif going on, remember that Lone Wolf and Cub was a whole road motif. They said they were on the road to hell. And perdition, at least in Catholicism, is another place. You know, despite having gone to Catholic school, I don't really know my Catholic cosmology that well, but much like purgatory and all these other places, it's kind of a hell like place, right? Perdition. So literally that it's in the title road to hell. And also if you remember, water was a big motif in the lone wolf and cub films. Remember his style. He was even better in the water because that was part of his fighting style. Well, whenever someone's about to die in this, it's on or near water in road to perdition. So, I'm just fascinated by all of these parallels. Tom Hanks wouldn't have been my first choice for this. As I mentioned, I would have probably chosen Andy Garcia or someone like that. But Tom Hanks, definitely, it worked. Another big thing, since I mentioned the Catholicism, is the graphic novel is all about Catholicism. They stop and confess at every Catholic church they come across. Whenever he kills someone, he confesses. And in fact... Spoiler for the graphic novel here and kind of for the film. In the end, the boy who is narrating the story does not end up with a family. He ends up in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage. And we find out in the very last panel that he has become a priest and he has written this whole story about his father that he never told anyone before. Again, much like the graphic novels that we've mentioned in the past, I super recommend the graphic novel. It's really worth checking out. Not that the film's not also great, but uh, Johanna, what did you think?
2: I could not stop thinking about Lone Wolf and Cub while I was watching the film. And tracing those parallels, I I guess it it distracted me a little bit. I'm not sure that I really saw the film without that lens but some of the things that i found interesting in comparison were thinking about the father-son relationship and how this is different that in lone wolf and cub Edo is gonna kill his son if he chooses the ball instead of the sword and in this one sullivan is desperately trying to protect his son from this life and make sure he doesn't choose it and because of that it actually sets them up for more danger than if he had said, oh yeah, my son's going to join the mob just like everybody else. And if it had been clear that his son was going to be part of this crime family, then the need to kill the son and the witnesses would have maybe not even been a thing. I mean, like there, so there were just interesting pieces about how Sullivan's determination to keep his family separate from this crime world actually ends up making them vulnerable in a totally different way that puts them in more danger than if they had joined the life. So I'm curious to hear what the two of you think about that piece of it, of whether he should have invited his son to join the crime family after all, the way Ito brings his son into the samurai life.
1: Yeah, I don't think he wanted to do that. One thing that was clear in the movie was that he was afraid his son was going to be just like him all the way up until the end, he didn't want his son to be like him. He didn't want him to be involved in the the crime life. Like he was, I really feel like he wanted his kid to just grow up and be as normal as possible. You can tell throughout the film, like they never talked about what he did for a living. They just knew that he worked for Mr. Rooney. And the mom made it clear, like, that's all you need to know. You need to stop asking questions. And I think that neither one of them wanted him to grow up in the gangster life. But Mike was there to provide a living for his family, which, let's be honest, it was during the Great Depression and jobs were scarce and he had money and he was still able to provide for his family when other families weren't, were struggling.
0: This is another big difference between the comic and the movie. In the movie, young Michael Jr. never kills anyone. In the comic, it's much more like Lone Wolf and Cub. They are partners. And although Michael doesn't want his son to be like him, he doesn't actively dissuade him from killing. And in fact, Michael Jr. saves his life on a couple occasions by killing people. <laughs> Time Magazine had a very interesting take on this at the time. They compared the graphic novel to a Catholic story. And it's very Catholic. Like I said, there's a lot of confessing. Michael, boom, right there, you know, named after one of the archangels.
1: Mm-hmm. And isn't it true that the angel of Michael was a messenger? Is that correct?
0: I believe so. Okay, All the angels kind of were, weren't they? I don't know, but, you know...
1: Well, just from art history, I wasn't raised Catholic, but just from art history and with the symbolism and religious art, it was my understanding that the archangels, like they had their own purpose. And one of them was to be a messenger, just like when Mary found out she was pregnant, it was an angel that told her.
0: Right. Yes, I agree I don't know enough about that particular angel. I know that in the dogma, the actual angel of death was Azrael, I believe. But Michael, Mm -hmm. yes, was definitely one of the the sort of warrior angels, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talk about Michael in the film being a soldier. But going back to what I was saying about the Time Magazine article, the review, as I recall, was that the graphic novel was a Catholic story And the movie Protestantized it. Now, I'm not entirely sure what they were getting at by that, but I think it had something to do with the way the story ends and the fact that Michael never kills. In the graphic novel, it's something he has to do, but he always goes and prays for forgiveness after he does it.
1: Well, as someone who did not grow up Catholic, I could see... The Protestant aspect of it, especially with the fact that the ending was tied up in a nice neat bow. Michael didn't go to an orphanage. The family that had nursed his father back to health took him back in. He just showed up and they took him back in and that was it. I feel like they would have called it a more Catholic movie if Michael would have ended up in an orphanage. And then leading back to the word perdition, I did look up the definition of that. And in Christian theology, it's a state of eternal punishment and damnation into which a sinful and unpenitent person passes after death.
0: Okay, so again, hell, but an unpenitent person is a huge difference between the the comic and the film, I feel.
2: Right. Well, or does it just mean unconfessed having not read the comic book i don't know how it ends but in the film he doesn't get a chance to confess after he's just killed a dude and so if one of the things that happens in the comic book is that he goes to confession after every kill except for the last one kind of an interesting or you know very dramatic ending let's all go to the lobby let's all
0: go to the lobby To get ourselves a treat. Now, I have a couple of disclaimers before I give this. One is that this is from a book, and the publisher is Better Way Home. I need to give a disclaimer because I used to work for this company. I'm going to read a passage from it, and uh, this is considered a review, and it's actually an endorsement for the book. The book is Handcrafted Cocktails by Molly Wellman. And I also have to give a second disclaimer. This was written by a friend of mine who is a bartender.
1: An amazing bartender, by the way. I know her too. She goes way back with us.
0: (laughs) Yes, she goes way back with Rosie and I. And so I'm giving a plug to a friend. But I have to say that it's not just because she happens to be a friend of mine, this is sort of her specialty is Prohibition-era stuff. She runs a Prohibition-era bar in Cincinnati, Ohio, called Japs, and she was named the best bartender in America in 2019. So she has cred. The book is called Handcrafted Cocktails. The recipe that I chose from Handcrafted Cocktails, and I'm going to read a sample from it, The Bee's Knees. So, the Bee's Knees was the most popular uh, drink in 1930, 31. And we mentioned in previous episodes that temperature was used to mask off flavors in cheap beer when we talked about adjuncts in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And also heat temperature was used to mask off flavors in sake, which we talked about in Baby Card at the River Sticks. Well, sometimes you want to mask off flavors in liquor. According to Wellman's book, the bee's knees is a prohibition drink It was created to help mask the taste of bathtub gin. The recipe was first seen in print in the 1930s. The recipe requires honey simple syrup. For those who don't have it, basically you combine one cup of water and one cup of honey in a pan over medium heat. Stir continually until the honey and water are evenly combined. Here is Molly Wellman's recipe for a bee's knees. One and a half ounces of gin a half-ounce honey simple syrup, a half-ounce lemon juice freshly squeezed. Add all the ingredients to a mixing glass, add ice, shake, and strain into a cocktail glass, garnish with a lemon twist. So there you have it. A bee's knees cocktail, I believe, is the perfect pairing for reviewing A Road to Perdition.
1: That sounds delicious. I think I'll have to go down to Japs and just have her make me one.
0: <laughs> I'm hoping we can have her come and give do a cocktail pairing with movies segment at some point in the future on the podcast, but she's super busy.
1: Yeah. And if you want to follow her, you can actually just uh, at Molly Wellman on uh, Instagram. She's always posting videos on how to make cocktails, and she's really been busy with that, especially... Uh, during the pandemic, it's been very entertaining to follow her on Instagram. All
0: right, let's wrap it up. Rosie, do you have anything you want to talk about or or plug before our next installment?
1: Be sure to follow me, facebook.com slash Briggs and That's B-R-I-D-G-S-N-S-M-A-C-K-E-M.
0: Johanna?
2: I'm continuing to explore more possibilities for the White River Indie Fest which is going to happen in May. And whenever you're listening to this, we usually have our festival in the spring. So I hope you'll check us out. We're a little Vermont, New Hampshire film festival, celebrating local filmmakers and also some gems of independent and foreign cinema.
0: I'm just going to plug our own show and say that coming up, we are going to get away from movies for a little while. We're going to do a couple of seasons of a TV show And then we're going to do a music show. So it's going to be a bit of a change after many, many episodes of cinema. But don't worry. We are film geeks at heart, so we will get back to film soon. Like and subscribe on the Apple iTunes store. Give us the highest rating possible to help other people find our podcast. You can also find us in a number of other places, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to give us some feedback, we love to get email GC8, letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric.
2: This is Rosie. And this is Johanna, signing off.
0: So many films, so little time.
1: (laughs) That's so very true.